All right. Well, again, thank you for being here today. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And uh, it is fun to be together. Whether you're connecting online or here in the room, thank you. And uh, your kids should be returned to you fairly safely. <laughs> they should look pretty much the same as when you dropped them off. So, uh, hey, listen, we're in this series called Hope is Open, where we're exploring the connection between peacemaking and hope. And we're really talking about the way in which we believe God is guiding and directing our congregation as a local church to think and talk about and grow spiritually. And what does it mean to express this gospel today in this current day and age. Uh, and so, so that's what we've been doing. And uh, lots, lots of hap- we've talked about lots of different things. And so I would encourage you, if you've missed a week or so, to listen to the podcast or jump on the YouTube channel and check it out as we kind of plunge in and continue moving forward. Uh, our anchor verse for this series, kind of what drives it all, is where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And we talked about what does that word blessed mean? Uh, and, and we just went through the whole thing about Uh, What is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and what are the 16 uh, works of an everyday peacemaker? We talked about that last week, lots of good stuff. And so this week I want to talk about the church. I love that we sang that song, right? Well, maybe you sang Under Your Mask, I don't know. I love that the band performed that song for us. Um, When I love that this idea of the church was born, right? The church was born uh, after the resurrection. The church was born as Jesus kind of gave this mandate for a way to bring hope and life and joy into the world, right? And so that's what I want to talk about today. But here's the deal. We have a phenomenon taking place in our world, Right? The, if, if you were to look at the research and the data on what is the number one growing religious affiliation, so when people have to fill out like a census or they have to fill out a report and it says, what religion are you? Uh, the number one growing religion in America right now are the nuns. Do you know that? The nuns. Now, that's not N-U-N-S, but that's N-O-N-E-S. N-O-N-E-S. This idea that people are saying none. Uh, maybe at one point in time they had uh, a religious affiliation, but over time they have moved to this category of none, that I'm just not associated with any one particular religion. It's not that I don't believe in God. It's not that I don't consider myself a spiritual person. It's just that I am a nun. In fact, I think we have a couple of categories that are emerging in our world today. They are the nuns, the nevers, and the never agains. Right? And so we have this growing population of people. They're, they're our friends, they're our families, they're our neighbors. You might even be here today as a guest. Uh, you came with someone because you heard there was going to be the human being here and it was the closest human being and you thought, well, I may as well go in. I don't know, you know. Maybe you heard there were lobster rolls after the service and you thought, I'll come out, right? But there's this, these three groups of people, the nuns, the nevers, the never agains. The nuns are those that would say, I don't really have a religious affiliation right now. The nevers would say, I've never had a religious affiliation. I just, I'm a second generation, third generation, grew up in a family where uh, going to church wasn't a part of our tradition, really no concept or understanding, and it's okay. That's just the life. And then there's the never agains, a, a, a growing, growing population of people who have had a negative experience with a religious organization, with a church, have walked through a feeling of exclusion, have walked through a feeling of abuse, trauma, and, and say, that's enough, I'm out. Now, what has produced the nuns and nevers and the never agains? That's the question. Well, that's a question. It's not the question of the day. I, that's, I, mean, I couldn't talk for that long about that question. You know. But the question I want to ask is, why is that? How do we end up with the nuns, the nevers, and never agains? And I think it's because a lot of our churches have what I would call the know-it-alls. 
right? You like that? The the sounds, you know? And it's just, thank you very much. That's years of education right there, right? The, the know-it-alls. And I'm a proud, I have, can tell you, I was a good know-it-all. I was a really good know-it-all. Uh, and, and the know-it-all church, the know-it-all church experience is one that lacks most mystery, has ever, God figured out, knows who's in and who's out, has spent the majority of time trying to figure this out. And I was a great know-it-all. I mean, for years, I was a great know-it-all. I think I still have moments where I backslide into a know-it-all status, right? In fact, I was such a good know-it-all, I traveled around a whole region of the country, and people paid me to tell them how to become know-it-all churches. I mean, pretty well at times, too, if I'm honest. I mean, I was just good at it. Coach, pastor, know-it-all. Here's how you can make it happen. And here's what part of the know-it-all thing is. It's very interesting. Part of the know-it-all church mentality is we know when people will visit and come to a church. We know how that works. We know when it's most likely that a person will visit a church. And there's three little words, tension, transition, and trouble. Tension, transition, and trouble are kind of the three opportunities that you have in an adult person's life to intersect their life with the gospel, right? And so what happens is church world kind of recognizes that. We create a system that's very fascinating. People will then attend church out of fear. They'll attend church out of guilt. And they'll attend church out of pain. Right? There's this sense of it. But here's the problem with the know-it-all mentality in the know-it-all church. Those same reasons are the reasons why people become nuns, nevers, and never-agains. It's very fascinating that people will find themselves and find a way into a church experience because of fear, guilt, and pain. But it's those very same emotions that will force a person into a category of none, never again, and then potentially generations later, nevers. So you exchange one type of fear for another. You're afraid of, uh, of what it means to get a diagnosis that you don't know what to do with. You're afraid of what's going to happen to you financially. You're afraid because you lost a job. There's some tension and there's fear there. And so you find your way into a community of faith that can offer a measure of hope. You feel guilty maybe about not going to church. You feel guilty about something you did on Saturday. So it's like, I should probably go to church on Sunday, Right. There's that guilt, or there's some sense of pain in your life, a loss. So you find your way into a community of faith. But then what happens over time, because we know it all, and we're so good at telling you how, what you should know and what you should hold on to, now you become not afraid of something like you just become afraid of God, <laughs> right? Or you feel guilty because you can't do enough. You feel guilty because you're not engaged enough. Or there's a pain that's produced, and so what's happened is the nuns and the nevers, the never agains, those numbers continue to skyrocket in our culture, in our community. And, and I want to say, right, rightfully so, some people have become nuns and never agains because it's a matter of self-preservation and self-care because of the absolutely hostile nature of a church environment that they might have been in or a religious group that they were a part of. But what we're seeing around us is that people are increasingly becoming spiritually dissatisfied, disenfranchised, and disconnected. Those are going to be three big words, I think, for our church in the coming season. That we're surrounded and we know in our own families and we know people around us that they've become a nun or a never or a never again. And in that space, there's a dissatisfaction. I don't want this, but I don't have an opportunity. I don't have an option to go and be loved and accepted. Or they've been disenfranchised from a community of faith for whatever reason. Perhaps it's a a disability. Perhaps it's because I don't fit into a mainstream way of thinking about this or that. And becoming increasingly disconnected all spiritually. And so when you look around, it feels and it can seem like the data shows, like, wait a second, the church is actually 
decreasing in size, the impact that it can have. But yet Jesus, he said that the gates of the netherworld would not prevail against the church, right? He told Peter that he was going to build this church, depending upon if you're Catholic or Protestant, on either the message or on Peter. It'll start, depending. It's a fun conversation that Protestants and Catholics had loved to have for the last, you know, 500 years. But the question becomes like, if Jesus said that the netherworld, the gates in there won't press up against it, they won't, what does that mean? Well, maybe you've heard that phrase translated as hell, that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. But I would just say to you, when Jesus said that, the idea of hell that we have in our minds right now that comes out of mainly medieval theology is not what Jesus was talking about. The Jewish mind in Jesus's day had no concept, no thought of eternal conscious torment and punishment. There was just the abode of the dead. Standard, standard Israelite way of thinking. You just leave the dead in God's hands. And so this idea of Hades, the Greek word, this was about this place where the dead were, where there was death. And Jesus was saying, listen, the gates of, of, of the netherworld where the dead are, it won't press up against that. I'm conquering death. But yet when you look around, it feels like the gates of death just seem to be encroaching more and more on the church. And that's why this topic today, I think, is important for us to explore. And what I'd like to do as fast as I possibly can is, is look at some ways in which Scripture offers us wisdom and how we can think about this word church in two ways, in two ways. So I want to look at a couple scripture verses today and just explore like how, how can we maybe think about the church in really healthy, positive ways? And, and what is that, how does that relate to all this language of peacemaking that we've been talking about? So I want to look at it through that lens, all right? So here's what it says in Amos chapter 5. In Amos chapter 5, we're going to get a picture as to what goes wrong with church because it's nothing new. Amos chapter 5, Amos is a prophet in the Old Testament, for those that might be new to Bible study, which is awesome. Uh, You're new to the whole scripture thing. Amos was a prophet who he was like a broken record about justice. Most of the prophets were. Most of the times we think of prophets as people who could tell the future. That really wasn't what the prophetic writings were about. The prophetic writings were always a, a moment in time where there was a disruption because what had become normal was problematic. And so the prophetic voice was always this voice bringing people back to the very heart of God, the heart of love. And so Amos talks over and over again about justice. Now, this is what Amos writes in the idea that this is the heart of God to the people of Israel. I hate, I despise your feasts. These weren't just like parties they had. These were always religious feasts that they were doing and and they were called to do by their law. I hate your feasts. I take no pleasure in your uh, solemnities. Even though you bring me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. Your stall-fed communion offerings and the really good ones, I won't look on them. Take away from me your noisy songs, the melodies of your harps. I won't listen to them. Like, this is, this is big stuff. Like, this is like the whole of Israelite religion. Like, God has just said, shut it down. I don't care. Close it up. It'd be like, it'd be like, like somebody coming in and saying, hey, you know what? Sell the building. Send the band away. Get rid of everything. This is useless. This doesn't mean anything to me. This isn't what I desire. And Amos goes on and says, rather let justice surge like waters and righteousness like an unfailing stream. These statements, by the way, are not two different concepts. It's important that we know that. I have them on the slides in paragraphs, but this is actually a poem. 
And in Hebrew poetry, we have something called parallelism, not to bore you, but just this is an important reality, that we shouldn't separate the idea of justice and righteousness. What's happening here is parallelism. The first line is saying, or the second line is saying what the first line is saying in a different way, to add emphasis, all right? And so when, when, when Amos says, rather let justice surge like waters, like righteousness, like an unfinished dream, it's the same thing being said in repetition. See, what had happened and what happens to all of us is the, the, the people of God, they lose sight of the why behind their religious practices. We lose sight of the why. Why do we sing? Why do we gather? Why do you tune in online? Why do you log in? Why do we want our children to be raised in an understanding of God? We miss all of the why. And so for the Israelites, it had become down to this question. How do we keep the gods happy? How do we keep the gods happy? And when you look at the history of Israelite religion, I say that there was, they were in a polytheistic environment. And, it, and we have lots and lots of evidence to show that this idea of the ancient Israelites being monotheistic and truly be, like worshiping one God, it was a struggle. And so the idea was, well, let's just keep the gods happy so that life will go well. So if we present all the offerings, all the sacrifices, we sing all the right songs, we do everything, then it's going to be good. And the prophet says, eh, wrong, time out. You're falling into a trap that everybody does. And we do that as well in modern day church. We think that God cares whether we come into this building or not. (laughs) I know that for a person whose paycheck is dependent upon people coming into this building, I recognize the irony in that statement. But the, the God of the universe, I will honestly say to you, is not affected one way or another by you and I coming into this space or logging in online. It's not that this keeps God happy. There's a whole other purpose for our gathering. And and so we have to be careful that we don't fall into that same trap and mistake that the purpose is the religious practices. The practices have a purpose. So we gather to be encouraged. We gather to be equipped. We gather to be inspired, to be sent out. That's the point. This is not the point, right? I heard one person describe it like this. It'd be like going to a restaurant, getting a menu, looking at the menu. This is a beautiful menu. Look at, look at, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Look at all that is offered on this menu. It's the most beautiful menu I've ever seen. Oh, look over there. Look at that meal. What's that? Oh, that's wonderful. It's been great being here, leaving a tip and then leaving without eating. <laughs> right? It's that idea. Like we have to actually dig in and get past the menu, which is this opportunity that we have and the religious practices that we do. This is how Paul says it. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church. So we would consider that religious gathering, like what Paul says here, as the church, the gathering. It's a group of people. It has its parallel. It has its, its, its similarities to the way Israel would have been thought of. It was an outgrowth, a part of. But I love that he says it's the body, it's the church. That's what this is. And he says, I'm a minister in accordance with God's stewardship given to me to bring completion for you, uh, the word of God. I want to bring completion of this word of God to you. Now, when Paul says word of God, he's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about the mystery hidden from ages and from generations past. That mystery. And that mystery, he says, has now been made manifest to his holy one. So the church is the body of Christ. I love that Paul uses this phrase, holy ones. How many of y'all are perfect? Raise your hand up nice and high. Just go ahead. If you're at home, just own it. So, he, he, so let's just be honest. Then the word holy can't mean perfect, all right? 
because you are the holy ones. If you're watching, you're the holy one. If you're hearing this, you're the holy one. That means set apart, separated in a sense for a unique purpose. I like to say this, that the plan of God always needs a people of God, right? The plan of God always needs a people of God. And so he says, it's this great mystery that you're revealing that it's been made manifest in you. And what is the great mystery? Christ in you, the hope for glory. That this was hidden. It wasn't understood that Christ is in everyone, but it's been made manifest to you who are now outside of Israel, but you've been engrafted into this idea. And so here's how I think Paul would say the purpose, the why, what we are as the church in one sense is the church is transformed individuals working for peace in their everyday lives. Now, working for peace in their everyday lives is the way in which we've talked about this work of Jesus. So it's transformed lives because now this, this understanding of Christ in us is manifest. We realize that we have been given this great gift of faith to believe that Christ is in us. And so it's transformed individuals working for peace in their everyday lives. These people make up what we call the universal church or the Catholic church. Little c, the word Catholic means universal. So if you ever hear a creedal statement that says, I believe in the one holy Catholic church, that word means universal. The Roman Catholic church is different. It's part of the universal church, but there is this universal body of Christ that is scattered throughout the world and it's transformed lives working for peace in their everyday life. So that's one sense of the church. Right? That's one sense of the church, the body of Christ, the, that we are literally the body of Christ in this world. We are the visible body of Christ. Now, there's a second way to think about the church that's equally important. And, and we'll get this from everybody's favorite book in the Bible, Revelation. <laughs> right? Revelation. Okay, so Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 through 11 says this. I was caught up in spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a voice as loud as a trumpet, right? So the writer here is having some sort of a vision, some sort of a dream, and he hears this voice. And what does the voice say? Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Wait a second, Ryan, you just said there was one church, but yet like just a few books away, is this, there's seven churches. What's that all about? Okay, so we have the universal church, which are all these transformed lives that actually believe in this mystery that we are the body of Christ, working in their everyday normal lives to build peace, to be, live in the kingdom of God, to reveal the kingdom of God. But there's also something unique, right? There's these seven churches that are described. And by the way, Revelation is probably written 70, 80 years after the life of Jesus. So there's been some development here. And, it's, and, and the writer's saying, well, there are these seven churches, right? So another way to think about the church is a group, right? A group of people that gather together to inspire, equip, and encourage everyday peacemaking. And that group makes up a particular church. Now, you might have heard it referred to as a local church, right? So the local church of Laodicea, that makes sense because their local church, the location where they lived, that was what was driving their identity. But nowadays, we live in such a uniquely connected world that, that a church could emerge and have people all over the world doing their thing, equipping one another, but maybe they're doing it in a particular way. Like I know of churches that they gather around a very specific, particular justice work or mercy work, and that's their identity. It's not geography, it's mission, right? It's a missional sense. 
And so here's what I would say. These two things, these two ideas about church are vitally important because God graciously uses both the scattered and the gathered, the universal and the group, and he uses these churches in tandem to bring peace on earth. Our focus this Christmas, I know it's gonna shock you, is this phrase, peace on earth. <laughs> you guys are gonna get so sick of hearing the word peace. You're gonna be like, oh my gosh. You can't imagine you'd ever say it. Can we talk about something besides peace? <laughs> but God uses them in tandem. Now, to illustrate this, let me show you something, okay? So I have this back here that I wanna show you. And hopefully it'll help us understand a little bit about how this works, the power of tandem. How many of you have ever ridden a tandem bike? You ever ridden a tandem bike? Anybody? Never ridden it? Okay, we need a volunteer. No, I can't do that. It's COVID. We can't do that. All right, so let me bring this up here so you can see. This is a tandem bike, right? Two people ride it, okay? Now, here's the amazing thing about a tandem bike. The tandem bike, the idea is you put two people on a bike, you get where you're going faster with less energy, right? You have two people pedaling, working together. So they did, they've done studies on this. They've measured it, all this kind of stuff. Oh, I'm supposed to move this up forward because of the lights. I'm so sorry. Okay, so uh, here's the thing. You put two people on. Now, here's what they discovered. You can have, when two people ride a bike as opposed to two separate bikes, you have 50% less wind resistance as you pedal. 50%. And you get the same amount of power with 20% less effort. That's the power of being in tandem. Now, the big question is, well, who should go first? Who gets to steer, right? Who wants to be in the front and who wants to be in the back? And it's the same kind of question for the churches, right? Is that the universal, the individual member of the church or is it the organized, the, the group? Like, which is more important? Who sits in the front? Well, here's the thing. I kind of think that question is messed up. Because I don't actually think that Crossroads itself either sits in the front seat or the back seat. Now, I do think that Crossroads Church is behind everything, right? I think that the Crossroads network, right, this thing we call church, it's behind individuals and groups committed to everyday peacemaking. It's behind it. Right, Paul would say it like this in Ephesians. He would say that God gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and others as pastors and teachers to equip the holy ones, to be behind the holy ones, the church, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And we should grow in every way into him who is the head from the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament and with the proper functioning of each part brings about the body's growth and builds itself up in love. Here's what I want us to understand. And here's the way I think about this. The church as individuals, I think you all, me, it, we steer. You as an individual steer. What is God calling you into? Where is God asking you? Where are you feeling driven? Where is God pressing into your heart? What's your space? And then there's a group that's behind you. There's a group of people that are behind you. They're pedaling you along. They're encouraging you. But here's the thing. Crossroads as an organization, we're the bike. It's the bike. So the question is, well, what, is what does Crossroads do? Well, we don't do anything. Isn't that great? It's the best job ever. I love working here. <laughs> we don't do anything. Individuals do things. Groups do things. We create an infrastructure that can accelerate when those two things work together. 
That's what I think is a healthy understanding of this. Both are needed. Both are necessary. And when both come together and when both work to create this bike, boy, we can do some amazing things together. You ever tried to ride a tandem bike by yourself? It's not easy. (laughs) Try it from the back seat. (laughs) Not going to happen. Another way we, we think about this is, uh, is like you and groups, they're kind of like puzzle pieces that they all come together and form this amazing picture. And Crossroads, the organization, is the table. It's just the table that everything sits on. The story isn't Crossroads Church. The story is you, you online watching, your group. That's the story. And so it can look all different types of ways. Like there can be all these amazing expressions of church. There can be all these amazing expressions of groups doing peacemaking work. But it's important that we come together and create this organization that can facilitate the work. So in your everyday life, here's what's amazing. I want to encourage you to be a person that connects the dots. Connect the dots as a contributor and a consumer of Crossroads Church. We have this kind of idea that we talk about a lot of these orange dots that are everywhere. And some of these orange dots are individuals, and some of these orange dots are groups that come together. But you can connect all of those dots by contributing and consuming. Connect those dots. Now, what do I mean? Well, contribute. When you contribute, you inspire, equip, and encourage others in peacemaking. You got to contribute. If we're going to get anywhere, if we're going to create this bike, if we're going to go out and bring peace into this world, make peace as a collective, we have to contribute, not for ourselves. We lay down things that we want, our desires, our wants, and we contribute. We give of ourselves. And you say, well, Ryan, I don't know if I want to do this. It sounds like a lot of work. Well, okay, fair enough. There's a lot of churches that maybe you don't have to work as hard to build the kingdom. I'll be honest with you, I'm interested in creating and being a part of something that that goes after the nevers and the nuns and the never-agains, the disconnected, the disenfranchised. That's, I think, what we're called to be and to do, not to gather and sing. And I think that's been a heartbeat of this church from the very beginning. We're simply in a phase of talking about new language of saying it. What does that look like? So we contribute, we give sacrificially. We move forward, but we also consume. You got to be a consumer too. Like there's parts of this, uh, this bicycle that we want you to consume. Take advantage of. Consume what inspires, equips, and encourages you. Here's the deal. If tuning into this broadcast or coming here to this building doesn't equip or inspire you or encourage you into your peacemaking, but being a part of a group of six or seven that meet in your home and study something and work towards it, then do that. <laughs> But that doesn't get you out of contributing to the whole. Because guess what? In a lot of ways, life isn't about you. It's not about me. You say, well, I don't need childcare. Great, gather with your six people, that's wonderful. But you, that doesn't mean you don't give of yourself to make sure that we have environments where people that do need childcare can be equipped and inspired and encouraged. You say, well, I don't, have a, I don't have a family member with special needs. I don't have a child with special needs. Good for you. But if we want to reach those that are disenfranchised because there's no place for their child with special needs, then we all better contribute in some way. So I'm not blind. Good for you. 
There's a lot of blind people that would love to participate in a church experience, but it's just not set up. Right? I mean, that's why we give. That's why we contribute. And it creates something better for you and the world. When you contribute and when you consume, we are creating something better. Here's the deal. You know now that you have a church behind you, a group of people behind you, as you become one who heals. You as an individual, you're the healer. You heal the wounded, the wounded uh, people in this world. You heal the systems of our world. And there's a group behind you with resources and encouragement and prayer. You're the story. You're the hero. You become ones who heal the fear and the guilt and the pain, both as an individual and as a collective. You become an everyday superhero. You become that hero that, that says, there is a space for you. There is a place where you are welcomed and loved and encouraged, and, and there is hope, and there's justice for you. And I think our goal, if we get this, if we get this, I believe God has positioned this church for this very, very powerful truth that we could create a global peacemaking network that's headquartered right here on the most hope-filled 74 acres on the planet. I believe that. I believe it. I believe that the last 23 years have been essential for what God wants to do in the next 23 years. Listen, when, I, when, when we were trying to figure out, stay or go, what are we doing? Before, before we knew we were leaving uh, our, our space of work and ministry, I was here in Colorado in, it would have been, I think it was like the October time frame, October 2019, yeah. No, 18, October 2018. October 2018, I came to a retreat here in northern Colorado with a group of, of, of men about my age, all kind of, we were disenfranchised with the church, truth be told. We were just kind of disgusted. That I didn't know why I was coming. I didn't know who was gonna be there. I almost didn't get on the plane for a whole host of reasons. But I got on the plane, I came out, and what I realized, the common thread was we were all about my age, we all had similar experiences, and we were all just kind of disgusted with where church was going. And one of the questions we were asked was like, to lean into our true selves, what was God calling us into? And I began to explore and think, God's calling me into, and I got this real clear picture that the next season of my life was going to be spent, not in deconstruction, oh, I'm so tired of that word. Deconstruction just for so many means just to complain. I'm just not into complaining. I'm just done with that word. But I felt like God just put on my heart reformation. That there was a reformation. There was a reconstruction that could take place within the church that I was a part of. And I got real clarity that this was what the next season of my life was gonna be spent on. Reconstructing what it meant to be the church in this world. Reforming things. So I went back and I'll never forget, went, my wife and I, we went and we, we, I went out to dinner. She said, how was it? And I just, bleh, I just, everything that happened. She was like, wow. And I just talked, I don't know what it means. And so I wrote this thing and I, I just felt like, okay, Lord, what is it that you want to do? And I just assumed that it was there because I was leading this organization that was working in the six New England states with the church. And I thought I'm positioned perfectly to bring reformation to this church. Like if I wanted to talk to anybody, I just picked up the phone and I'd have an appointment with them. I, people knew me. Could you imagine? Like people knew me and would take a point. They wanted to meet with me. I was on a wait list. It's amazing. I thought this has got to be it. 
And then it was two months later, sitting in Thanksgiving with my in-laws, and the Lord said, you're done in New England. I said, what in the world? And then it was three months, well, then it was about a month later where we were asking the question, well, what does that mean? And we were wondering, well, does that mean I'm going to go into nonprofit work in an agency organization that is working in this reformation? Or what does that look like? And the Lord just, again, whispered into my heart that the best place to show that there's a better way to do church is the local church. That's the best place. And so we just decided we were going to, we were going to double down on our effort in church leadership, in teaching, in relationships. And then it was about a month and a half later that we came into Crossroads and we started to see the heartbeat of the church. And I have to tell you this, I have 30 years maybe left in me in this game. I hope only maybe 18 in charge. (laughs) I'd like to spend the last 10 just helping other people be in charge. (laughs) I don't want to waste it. I don't want to waste it. I really do believe that, that God brought us together. I think the Lord also whispered to our hearts that we were gonna be at a place that we needed, not just a place that needed us. And that was a total change. It was like, you know, when you're a part of the know-it-all experience, you just know you gotta go to a place that needs you. <laughs> but God said, no, 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 this is gonna be a mutual. Like, you're gonna need this group and this group is gonna need you. And I can promise you that I believe that the foundation of the last 23 years and what God has been doing over the last five years and what's been happening in our church over the last year, that God is preparing us to be a group of people who if we will live this gospel, if we will contribute, if we will make it the center, if we will make it our heartbeat not to be a place that you go to church, which has been the heartbeat, but if we really double down I believe that in 10 years, who we are will be so mind-blowing that we would have never imagined it, never dreamed it, but we've got to get on the bike. And sometimes we've got to hold the handlebars and lead and pedal. Sometimes we need to pedal behind those that are leading. Sometimes we need to say to people, you stop pedaling, let me pedal for a while. It's just too heavy a burden right now. But I believe if we'll do this and if we'll be open to what God wants to do, if we'll give up the know-it-all mentality, it'll be amazing. It'll be amazing. So what is God inviting you into today? You're sitting at home. You've listened to this. You've seen a tandem bike. You've heard some music. What is God inviting you into? I hope that you'll sense two very specific things. I hope you'll sense God inviting you to be a consumer of the church, to take advantage of the ministries and the programs and the groups that are offered to you to equip you and encourage you and inspire you into everyday peacemaking. I hope that you'll go to crosswoodscolorado.com slash peacemaker. I think it's peacemaker, peacemaking, I don't know, one of the two. Go to the website and see the groups that are out there that are virtual, opportunities to grow, to become educated on the areas of injustice that our culture is facing, to hold a mystery of the pain of others where mercy is needed. Take advantage of something that inside of you says, I need to learn about that. I need to get active here. God's calling me into that. Be a consumer, be a part of this. 
tune in online, come worship. These things transform us. They change us. That's why God has said it's good to do these things. And I hope you hear a very specific invitation to be a regular contributor. The reality is we have enough people here to impact thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of lives as long as we all contribute. And yes, I am talking about your time and I am talking about your money. Impacting lives, that's what it takes, time and money. (laughs) I don't know, God's always seemed to use those two resources pretty well. I hope you'll hear that invitation. And I hope that over the next two weeks, as we really start to dig into some of the specifics of areas of peacemaking, and then in two weeks, we're gonna spend Sunday and Thursday night on a vision, a 10-year vision for where I believe and where our leadership has been spending hours and hours and hours talking and praying and leaning in and saying, where are you taking us? Given the last 23 years, given how this whole thing started, where are you taking us in the next 10? Where are you asking us to go together? And so I hope you'll open your heart up to that. This song that we have uh, this morning for you to just kind of listen to and think about what God is inviting you into. The lyrics say, headline breaks and we start to hate again. Sound familiar? Calling them names again. And we give our peace away. We give our ability to create wholeness away. We have to be a church that is better than that. We can't fall into the trap of others. It's just us. It's just children loved by God. It says, learn to feel, learn to begin again. Open our eyes again to see our brother's pain. Two things about this. I I think that we ought to work to create a space where people can learn to feel God's presence again that have been wounded, that have been excluded, that have been told, don't ask that question. Don't think like that. I think we can have a great opportunity to create that space, but our eyes have to be opened again to see our brother and our sister's pain. And then the chorus says, I wanna see, I wanna see the love all around you. It seems so simple, but it is so difficult. So I just encourage you, close your eyes, listen to the song, allow God's spirit to nudge you a little bit in a direction to consume and contribute. And I'll be back out to 